This is Ryan Jennings from the Small Town Horror Podcast. Um, I have a lot of time to think about stuff. Like the other day, ran into a guy I knew from high school. Hadn't seen him in almost 20 years. We were just talking, idle chit-chat, the sort of thing you do when you run into someone you went to high school with. And then he told me how his dad passed away. It was a little bit out of the blue. I didn't really feel like trading stories in that regard, so I offered my condolences and nodded, thanked me, the usual pleasantries. And then he said with a smile, you better be sure that we're going to check that casket twice. And then he laughed. And I did my best. I follow suit. You laugh. In that situation, I had no idea what else I was supposed to do. And then we said goodbye and parted ways, and that was that. And I was sort of standing there dumbfounded. It took me until I was walking back to the motel for me to remember. His dad, years ago, was a warden at a prison. And it was probably the only story that anyone in school had ever heard from him about his dad. This was way out of town, you know. This is another one of those examples of something crazy happening outside a crazy town. There was a story, and it was all over the news, about how one day a prisoner escaped. The issue was is that this particular prisoner was a murderer. It was because of technicalities that he'd been bounced down to a lower security prison. Even in a lower security prison, it's not exactly easy to get out. It took this guy two years. And then one day... They do their initial cell roll call, and he's gone. And everybody freaks. They immediately start to try and backtrack things. They start to try and figure out what the hell happened. And that's when the information slowly starts to trickle out. The only way that he could have gone between the night before and the next morning was if he had help. And the only person who possibly could have helped him was another prisoner. And it was a specific prisoner in this case. It was insanely unorthodox, but this one particular prisoner, we'll call him Ben because I can't remember what his name was. See, if anyone died in the prison, it was his job to bring the bodies out, dig the grave, put the body in, cover it up, come back. And this guy, Ben, had been at the prison for years. He wasn't going anywhere. It was absolutely the definition of one of those institutionalized guys. He was afraid of the outside world. He wanted to stay in. And he was so trusted that the warden, which nobody knew at the time, completely would break protocol. And after who knows how many years of having to go out with Ben to the cemetery and wait for him to dig and come back, something that took hours and hours and hours, and they just didn't have the guard manpower to handle it, so it was left up to the warden. It started to be too much of an inconvenience for him. So when a prisoner would die, he would go out with Ben to the cemetery, he would drop Ben and the body off, And then he'd come back to the prison, and he'd handle whatever he needed to handle there. He'd have his coffee, and then he'd go back and pick him up. Every single time, Ben was right there, waiting to be picked up. All they can figure out is with all this testimony that at some point, this killer, again, I don't remember his name, we'll call him Jake. At some point, Jake must have befriended Ben, because the day that he disappeared is the same day that Ben had to go out to bury a body. Now the task of burying the body was done really early in the morning, 
before initial roll call so they could have him out the gates before any of the prisoners were up so there wouldn't be any additional risk of a prison break while the gates were open. And then he'd be brought back after lockdown for the same reason. Plus, he was old. It took him a really long time to dig those graves. So the way they figured it is when someone finally died in the prison, somehow Jake had gotten out of his cell. And he went to the chapel where the body was being kept at the time, climbed into the coffin, waited for it to be loaded into the truck, taken off to the cemetery, dropped off there. Then as soon as the warden left, he was going to jump out. Probably ran. Except there was a problem with that. That day, Ben wasn't burying anyone. Ben was a guy who had died. As near as anyone could tell, the moment that the word got around that someone had died, went, climbed in the box, pitch black, he had no idea that that was Ben in the box. There's no doubt that he smelt a formaldehyde. He knew it was a dead body. It was too dark. He couldn't risk turning on a light. It's not like he had a flashlight with him. He climbed in and he laid on top of that dead body for hours, waiting, thinking he was going to escape, having no idea he was laying on the man who was supposed to set him free. By the time they pieced all this together and they went out to the graveyard with the man who had taken over Ben's responsibilities and dug up the grave, it was too late. They opened up that casket and they saw the blood covering the inside of the lid. Jake had worn his fingers damp near down to the bone. He'd broken off all the nails. His blood smeared all over. And you have to imagine the last words he said were probably his own screams, yelling for Ben to let him out, yelling for Ben, what are you doing? Let me out of here. All the while, smelling the formaldehyde of Ben's corpse beneath him. It's a weird memory to suddenly bring up to a guy, especially when he's just waiting in line for some bourbon. But that's crazy town for you. It doesn't. Have you heard the story of... And written on the wall... And everyone blood. has the different stories of, oh, this happened to my brother, this happened to my telling you stories of the old... There was this girl. It was back when we were little kids. To find out the truth regarding one of the most enduring tales in American A lore. story behind the story. Because it's just a story. Hello, and welcome to the Just A Story podcast. I'm Jake. And I'm Sam. And we're here to tell you a story. Each week, we take a look at the stories that we tell over and over again. What our myths and misdeeds, fears and fables say about us as humans. Welcome on back to the show. Hi, time for weekly affirmations. Oh God, not again. Weekly affirmations. You're getting better every day. You sure? Yeah. I didn't think I could get better. Okay, you know what? I can't wait for tomorrow. Why is that? Because I get better looking every day. Oh, good. My dad used to say that to me every night before he went to bed. Oh. <laughs> this explains so much. <laughs> but you do too, listeners. You're all just, every time I come back, I just can't believe how pretty you are. And we want to thank all of our listeners for reaching out to us on Twitter, emails, through our website, leaving lo- lovely comments, and giving us more and more story ideas. I want to remind everyone about the Urban Legend Hotline, and you can reach that number for any urban legend needs you might have by dialing 512-222-3375. And recently, we've had a few 
calls and tweets and things uh, come in about Creighton. That sounds familiar. Right. Well, our story this week comes from the host of a show called Small Town Horror, and he's actually investigating some of the stories that we've kind of been uh, getting a little worried about. So, I mean, I think that's really commendable. It's kind of what we do here. It's taking the stories that you hear over and over again and going out to see what's fact and what's fiction and why they stick around. Yeah, so if you want to hear Ryan's investigation of this, you know, check out his podcast, Small Town Horror. And you can get a really deep look into it. And you can find out exactly how much of it is. Just a story. And uh, another podcast you might want to check out is our historical storytelling audio drama. Experimental. Of course. (laughs) Historical storytelling audio drama. Audio Dime Museum. This season, we're taking a look at the history surrounding the circus and all that goes with it. So we would like to invite you to go over there and get cozy with the curator and spend some time learning about some really weird history. So back to the story at hand that Ryan brought us, and it's about prison breaks. I just, I feel like that was such a trope in like the cartoons we watched as children, which now seem horribly violent and or racist, that like it's almost got a comical connotation to me. Or you think of them like burying the file in the cake. Right. Or... Tying sheets together and making a rope out of it and going out the window, tunneling, tunneling. Oh, and Shawshank. Everybody thinks of Shawshank. Of course, I think of Shawshank. It's a little bit more elevated than Bugs Bunny, as Morgan Freeman has that gravitas. Yes. So the legend we have today is an oldie for sure. Is it an oldie but a goodie? Oh, it's a goodie. It's a great one. And so, you know, just to summarize, it's about this serial killer. And he's hiding from the police. He's eventually captured and put in jail and spends years trying to find out a way to break out. It's his obsession. He starts to learn all of the weaknesses of the prison. Tries to do the good old dig his way out. He's met with bedrock. He eventually befriends his guy, Old Ben. Is Old Ben old? Yeah, I think so. And he's the guy that builds the little roughly made coffins and takes care of the prisoners that die. Mm -hmm. And he finds out that Old Ben will take the bodies up with one of the guards to Little Potter's Field to bury the bodies and the guard will leave him there to bury them that's interesting so he plans his escape okay he is going to climb in one of these coffins brilliant and when the guard leaves old ben to bury the coffin he'll pop out and make a run for it will old ben know is old ben in on it old ben's in on it okay because if i were old ben i'd be very worried if i were not in on it (laughs) so being a serial killer he, of course, thinks, I'll just kill somebody. Uh-huh. And then catches himself and says, well, oh, then. Oh, see? Yeah. Reform. Prison yeah, works. For sure. Oh, well, they'll catch me. They'll know it was me. I just need to wait for someone to die. And, I mean, he seems like a very patient, methodical guy. Right. Classic psychopath. We would call this an organized killer. I'm profiling. So, eventually, someone dies. Shocking. He is able to creep in and... Put himself in the coffin mm-hmm. before it's taken away. Right. So he's riding in there. He's next to this dead body. It's completely dark. Oh, so he doesn't like take the body out. He no. just like hops in with it. Yes. Ew. And Had they not noticed it was twice as heavy? I don't know. Maybe the guy was just eating a little too much prison food. Old Ben must have been hella strong. So after almost 
vomiting many times. They eventually reach the potter's field, and he feels as the coffin is picked up, put in the grave, and he waits patiently to hear the guard leave. Instead of hearing the guard leave, he hears a crumble. No. On the coffin. No. As they begin to fill in the grave. No. But old Ben. He then realizes, as he turns over to look at the body, that old Ben is the one that died. Oh, the irony. Oh, it's a good irony. Oh, the irony. Okay, let's leave alone the gaping holes in logic that I see with this. Where are the holes? One, he only now turns over. It was dark. It's still dark. It's a story. I know. That's what I said. I was going to leave it alone and you ask. Also, how do we have the story? Oh, good point. Good okay, point. Okay, you see what I'm saying? Okay. Like, he might have like, screamed and gotten taken out or something. Okay, yeah. And then he goes back and he's like, that was a poor plan. And like, don't they nail the lids of coffin shut? But anyway, I, I digress. Just kind of look at the themes. So it, I think that one thing we're talking about is like, oh, people will do anything to get out of prison. Oh, for sure. We've also got this sort of, you got to know the right people idea. Like, it's all about uh, making connections and like in prison. Oh, definitely. You're, you're getting the tradesmen. You're getting the old guy who knows what he's doing. And then I've got nothing but time kind of idea. Is it better to be dead or better to be in prison? Yes. Very, very important point. So what do you kind of get out of it? What do you kind of see? Well, I mean, I think, I think it's interesting, the idea is that you would just do anything to get out. Even climb in a coffin with a dead person. That's pretty extreme to me. Oh, I would do it. If I, if I had access and I was, like, stuck in prison, there's no way. I'd be like, oh, I can deal with this for a day. I might get to go out and I don't know what I'd want to do. I'd probably just want to go sit quietly, so maybe I wouldn't. <laughs> You'd be the perfect inmate. I wouldn't be such a good inmate. But, you know, as we want to do on this show... We always ask, is it just a story? I don't know. There are a lot of historical stories stating that similar things have happened. Being that all of the stories that we found are pretty old, mm-hmm. it's hard to say how much of it really is true, but they're all presented as truth. So in my research for this, I found a story that I thought was interesting because I found it documented in a few places that were kind of of the era. I found a book called Newgate Prison in Connecticut, which was written in 1876. Primary source material. Oh, yes. So a prisoner died and was placed in a roughly made box. And before the box and contents were taken to the graveyard a mile north, another prisoner pulled the corpse out and hid the body, the corpse, in a corner. And then he climbed in the coffin. So the assigned parties have the box, and they're going to go bury it. And they were about to commit dust to dust and ashes to ashes when, to their utter consternation, a strange noise was heard from within that coffin. From the tomb, a doleful sound. They listened for a moment, transfixed with horror, and the next moment all fled with the utmost speed back to the prison and related their horrible adventure. The prisoner was escaped and never retaken. So that is presented as fact. Right. And actually, I found later like that the guy's name was Phelps that did it. This was written down in more than one place. A detail either got added later or it was better documented. It's hard to say. So there are a few other stories that I found. One is of John Nevison in the mid-17th century. And he was a highwayman. 
across the coach roads he did ride. Sorry, wrong time period. Yeah, he was not in the Johnny Cash supergroup. He was he was in the song. That's totally him. So he was a highwayman and he was eventually captured and put in prison in Leicester for thievery. Before he was even brought to trial, he pretended to be ill and struck with plague. He had a physician friend come in and visit him and confirm the diagnosis. So like bubonic plague? Yeah, good old plague. Oh. 17th century. And so the doctor recommended that he be removed from prison so that he would not infect the prisoners and staff. So they gave him his own private cell and a private nurse to take care of him. And his doctor friend visited him several times a day to take care of him. Money says it's not a doctor. I don't know. Some drunk. Who's it's like the town drunk. I don't know. You give a dentist Otis friend. Otis from Mayberry. Yes. You got like your friend like, hey, man. Come say have the plague. Is David going to do this to you? Yes. So he continued to worsen, and everyone bought into it. The wife of the jailer even forbade her husband from going near the cell. So Nevison was a really tricky guy. He had a painter friend. This guy had lots of friends. In all the right places, apparently. I guess so. Friends in low places. They had come and visit him and painted on various blue markings and spots to make him look like he was about to die of the plague. He had special effects makeup. Yes. It's high production value. And so his physician friend came back. And this is why I think he's maybe a doctor-ish. This is, of course, 17th century, so doctor was, a, you know. He gave him a preparation to make him appear dead. Witnesses were brought in to confirm his death, but none would get too close. No one wanted to catch the plague. So a coffin was brought, and he was removed from the prison mm-hmm. and escaped. That's amazing. And, of course, he continued on with his career as a highwayman. But there was a very interesting twist to the story. What's that? Since everyone heard that he had died, whenever he tried to hold someone up, everyone thought he was a ghost. No. Yeah. Oh, my God. It really is what the song's about. Maybe it is. And also, you should check out the poem, The Highwayman, if you're not familiar with it. It's the only poem I've ever read that gets stuck in my head. Uh, it's a poem written by Alfred Noyes, and it won a Caldecott medal for these black and white illustrations. They remind me of scary stories to tell in the dark. It's not the same artist, but this artist is amazing. You should go find that and read it to your kids and give them issues. Yeah, pause. Go torture your children. <laughs> All right, come back, because I've got another one for <laughs> okay, you. Okay, great. And so this one takes place during the Civil War, and we have James Hancock. And he was captured in the winter of 1864-65. And he was a federal claiming to be a scout attached to Grant's army. And he was captured under suspicion of being a spy. And he was sent to jail, Castle Thunder, in Richmond. Castle Thunder is an amazing name. Sounds like somewhere a like evil mad scientist should be. Or like J.R.R. Tolkien invented it along with a language for elves. Like the most predictable name ever. So one evening, he was singing songs and just kind of performing for the other prisoners when what sounds like he had this, like, classic bad Hollywood death. Like, he, like, throws his arms up and, like, eh, and falls down. So he had a flair for the theatrics, is what you're saying? <laughs> a little bit. Was it, like, Elvis and Jailhouse Rock? Was that the kind of singing and dancing he was doing? I hope so. <laughs> it was, like, completely choreographed. <laughs> so the surgeon had just returned from a ride and was brought in to see if he was dead. And he was tired. He like looks at him and is like, yeah. That's my professional opinion. <laughs> the quote is, dead as a doornail. So he was put in a wagon and sent to the hospital to be placed in a coffin. But of course, when the driver got there, 
there was nobody in the back. That's awesome. So he got out and had a second life as a singer-dancer. Spy. Singer-dancer. Corpse and spy. That's the unpublished John LeCare book. <laughs> Obviously. So I did find a story that happened in 2010 in Mifflintown, Pennsylvania. There was a woman who was like 19. She'd been arrested and was about to be taken to prison and jumps out of the back of the car and runs away with handcuffs on and breaks into a nearby funeral home. When the funeral director goes in that night to like check and make sure everything is where it needs to be, he picks up the phone to make a call and notices there's someone using the line. So then he goes down into the coffin gallery or whatever and looks around, doesn't see anyone, but as he turns to leave, the lid of one of the coffins pops open and she jumps out and tries to run away. Did he have a heart attack? No, he didn't. He like fought with her and like restrained her eventually. And the cops came and got her. He's like, this happens sometimes. The funeral parlor did seek restitution for um, the damage she did to the coffin, which was $375. Coffins are a racket. Yeah, but that was just the damage. <laughs> so lots of st- historical stories talking about the great lengths that people will go to to try to escape prison. Of course, there are lots of other great escape stories. I think we're going to do a whole episode about Alcatraz eventually. The Alcatraz escapes are some of the most amazing. Oh, yeah, definitely. Elaborate. One day, guys. So that's the plotting and planning and the escape that people will try to make from prison. But what happens when they come together and it's not some lone wolf operative and they decide... To riot. Well, prison riots are a big thing. I mean, it's a very terrible incident that usually happens related to the prison conditions. Absolutely. I think that there can be uh, a hope for escape as well uh, that sort of starts the, the talk of it. And it's a very well-documented phenomenon. It has happened throughout time, and it's happened very recently. But my favorite prison riot story... Your favorite prison riot story? Do you doubt that I have more than one in my back pocket, sir? I do not. Is the story of the Montana State Prison Riot of 1959. Let's hear it. Okay. So there was a man named Jerry Miles. And he's an interesting character. He was kind of convicted again and again for minor offenses. And he kind of seemed to prefer life inside prison to life outside of prison he thrived there and he could grandstand and get attention for things that might not otherwise elevate him in society he had a genius level iq and was very manipulative during his sentence for i think a burglary he was in atlanta georgia in 1944 and he tried to organize a mutiny at a federal penitentiary there and after that they realized that he kind of had a propensity for this sort of thing, kind of inciting bad behavior. And so they transferred him to Alcatraz. And he was incarcerated there during the Battle of Alcatraz. While he was not a ringleader and he did not try to escape, he definitely took notes. Then he was sent back to Georgia to finish out a sentence and was eventually released. And as soon as he was released, he got on a bus to Butte, Montana. Why would you do that? I don't know. No, I know why he did. He'd heard that the prison in Deer Lodge, Montana, was one that could be run by an inmate. 
where inmates kind of had the life of Riley. He'd heard that from somebody he was incarcerated with over the years. And so he decided that he was going to go to Butte, Montana and commit a burglary and get put in that prison. That sounds like the best plan ever. Well, it's a kind of sure thing. If you want to get put in prison, there's a way to do it. He was incarcerated in Montana State Penitentiary. They didn't do any kind of background check or record sharing, so they didn't know that he had this kind of... History of starting shit. History of starting shit. Yeah, Yeah, that's the technical term. I'm pretty sure. He became a con boss or a convict boss in the garment shop in the prison. And he had young men provide him with sexual favors in order to be allowed to work there. And he this is like a cush job. Mm-hmm. And he had like a lavish apartment set up in the cell that was adjacent to it. And he was kind of like... Like Capone's swanky Not cell. that swanky. I don't think he had his own desk imported, no. This new warden came in, and his name was Powell. And he abolished the con boss system and started having guards or professionals do these jobs to kind of reduce the amount of sexual favors that people were able to get, sexual and other favors, within the prison, and kind of neutralize that hierarchy. It seems like a pretty good plan. Yeah, I'm going to say that was a good call. So you got the guy that likes to start shit, and the new warden, it isn't going to take shit. Right. And they come together and harmonize. Oh, good. And live happily ever after. That's the end. No, just kidding. He got highly miffed about it, and... He started acting out in very inappropriate ways. And during an interview with a deputy warden named Roth, he kind of threatened to kill him. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. As you do, if you're a prison guard or a warden and someone threatens to kill you, they put him in solitary for a while. He became completely enraged. He went from being like pissed to they've got to pay for this. No one does this to me. Very entitled feeling and like they personally insulted him. At the same time that Powell came in, they brought in a man named Walter Jones, who was a sociologist. He recognized that Miles had this weird cult leader charisma. And he was like, yeah, I I don't like this guy being in general population. He needs to stay where he is. Roth said that he wanted to earn his trust back and demonstrate to prisoners that he was willing to give second chances and really just didn't think that it was the right thing to do. That sounds great on paper. Yeah, doesn't it? So they brought him back into the gin pop. Meanwhile, there's a young man named Lee Smart who has been incarcerated after being convicted of second-degree murder. He's 19. He's a baby. He's like six feet tall and has like blonde hair and wears a ducktail hairstyle and has tattoos and wears a leather jacket. So, 19- so he, was, he was an extra in... Elvis's Jailhouse Rock. <laughs> I was going to say Rebel Without a Cause, but we can go your way too. This is 1959 Greaser Cool. So he also, wait, let's just keep, I'm going to keep going with it. He was the drummer in a prison band. OMG. <laughs> and he kind of got this position of power because the band gang, as the guys were known, kind of trafficked narcotics for everybody else. Yeah, you know, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Seriously. <laughs> he was targeted by older cons for exploitation. And he became Miles' jailhouse lover. There was also a third man named George Alton. And he was sort of this stocky, Montana rough guy, like kind of cowboy-ish. And he liked Smart a lot. And he was respected by both the guards and the prisoners. And he had kind of earned that respect by participating in these prize fights that they would host every Sunday. And winning all the time. 
So not someone you want to get on your bad side. No, and he became Lee's protector and his cellmate. So he took the young, good-looking, James Dean-like guy under his wing. He did. Now, he did not become Smart's jailhouse lover. That was Miles, the crazy mastermind cult leader. Of course. But Alton liked the guy, and apparently Smart liked him. Now, Alton wanted out of prison. He was done. He did not like being there. So he was moved into minimum security housing and could kind of move about the grounds freely because everyone trusted and respected him. And so one day he took advantage of his trustee status and he did this by stealing a car marked register of motor vehicle in August of 1958, the day after Powell, the new warden, started his job. The two prisoners waved to the new warden on their way past the prison. Of course they did. Powell waved back. Bye. Enjoy your new job. By the time the warden realized what had happened, Alton and his confederate were too far away to do anything. Alton managed to stay hidden until November, but then he was arrested and taken back to jail. And he was put in segregation, and he was next door to Jerry Miles, our charismatic cult leader. Okay, so did they strike up a friendship? They did, because Miles immediately, because, I mean, subtext, picked up on the fact that that Alton wanted out of prison. I don't know where he got those context clues. He must have been just really good at reading people. For sure. So he exploited that and, like, promised him that he would get him out if he would sort of be on his team. And they both, you know, knew and liked smart. So they had that mutual acquaintance in common. So we have the charismatic, cultish-like leader, Miles. He is teamed up with the prize fighter, have to get out of here, Alton. Mm-hmm. And Jerry Miles is in love with Lee Smart. The greaser. Who is under the protection of Alton. Correct. All right, so we have this kind of love triangle. Jailhouse love triangle. I know. It's, it's, it's... This is like Romeo and Juliet in prison. It really is. It's very confusing. Do they talk like Romeo and Juliet? Is this like the original idea for Baz Luhrmann's movie? I feel like Baz Luhrmann would have them sing and play drums in the prison band way too much in the movie. That'd be glitter. Everywhere. So much glitter. Sounds amazing. Actually, I would see that movie. I would see that movie. Sign me up. So they start hatching the plan to take over the prison. The three of them. And they also recruit this guy who is a lock picker. And I included this because I love the prison term for it. It's a gopher man. Why? I don't know. Isn't it fascinating? Gopher? I'm trying to think of why it would like be Like a go for it man? Like, Maybe. I don't know. I don't, but if anybody knows that, please tell me. So on April 16th of 1959 at 3.30, the riot began. Miles and Smart were hanging out, minding their own on a catwalk in cell block one when a guard happens by. And he turned around to open the window, and when he looked back at him, Smart threw gasoline in his face, and Miles lit a torch that he'd made out of a mop and held it out toward him. Oh, my God. I know. It's a little scary. So the guard gave him his keys and his gun and said, whatever you want, boys. So they didn't light him on fire? No. Okay. They did take him to the hole and lock him in there. Better than being lit on fire by a mop torch. (laughs) By about a million times, yes. I would have made the same choice if I was given those two options. Cake or death. And then while they were putting him in the hole, other inmates kind of 
got these other two guards, and they had control of cell block one, and they had a gun, but now they needed ammo, so they went to cell block two, and within a matter of minutes, they'd taken it over. Now, the only places they don't have control over are the minimum security housing, which really wasn't an issue, because they didn't want it, they didn't care, and the inside administration building, which is where like the warden's office was, and the sociologist, and there's only one woman on the prison grounds anywhere, and her name was Babe Lightfoot. Just come on. She would definitely be a character in the movie. Yeah, absolutely. But she, she would have some like aria though. She would. Well, here's a fun fact. She left because a bunch of inmates came in and told her she had to get out and made her leave the prison and wouldn't tell her why. Oh, so kind of honor among thieves. Yeah, they came in and were like, you have to go. Just don't ask any questions. Just go. So she was not there at the time that this happened. Alton, Smart, and Miles make their way inside that building. And Roth, that shithead, that guy that Miles didn't like, who brought him back into Gen Pop, is just getting back to his desk after a meeting and has no idea that anything has happened. Oh, this is going to go so well. It goes incredibly well. So Miles flings open the door and comes at him with a meat cleaver. And he deflects the blow with a plywood box. And then at that moment, Smart reveals that he has a rifle and shoots him in the chest and kills him. Oh. It's terrible. I believe he's the only casualty of the entire riot. Then they take another guard hostage and make him call the warden. Warden Powell comes inside the prison. Miles and Smart approach him and force him to call the governor of Montana... Governor Arnonson. But he's not home. So they take a message. We'll have him call you back in a week or so. So the warden left a message with the governor's secretary asking for the governor to call him back at number eight as soon as he returned. Number eight was a prearranged warning that told the governor that the warden had been compromised and that he should not return the call. Oh, they had like a secret code set up? I hope so. That's interesting. Like, don't you hope they both know about it? I hope so. <laughs> As you read it, like, aren't you like, oh, God, I hope they got the memo. Governor's like, hey, all right, call him back at number eight. Yeah. I'm, so. I'm pushing the eight button, and it's not doing anything. I think my rotary dial is broken. <laughs> it <laughs> takes <laughs> so long to dial. Less than nine. They took all the rest of the guards and the prison staff as hostages, And they put them in Cook's Row, which is a row of cells that went behind the cafeteria where all the kitchen staff were normally housed. Meanwhile, the warden was taken into the cafeteria by the prisoners and offered cake and coffee because they thought he was a pretty nice guy. So they did not shoot him in the chest. They gave him cake. Cake or death. Cake or death. Oh, my God. Miles and Smart had been there a little bit, but then they left and he was offered cake. And they told the prisoners to kill the warden if the governor hadn't called back by eight. But the governor had not called back by eight. But the prisoners didn't kill the warden because he told them that he would pardon anybody that came with him and they could all go to minimum security and get out of there and they didn't have to be part of this. And a lot of them took him up on it. Smart. They were smart. No, they weren't smart. Smart was with Miles. So we have the two lovers Mm -hmm. that have basically taken over this prison, killed one of the wardens. The deputy warden. Have the other warden locked in a room, eating cake. Mm -hmm. 
And they're waiting on the governor to dial eight. Yes, it's all going very well. And then they had the, their very loyal prisoners who are going to assassinate the warden if they don't get the call from the governor, but then don't. Oops! So where is Alton, our strong man, the protector of our fun greaser guy? He's being very upset because he knows that now that they've killed the deputy warden, they're not going to be able to negotiate any kind of escape. She has a pretty good head on his shoulders. Yeah, he does. He's like, you have screwed up everything. And he's getting really frustrated because he's in this to get out. You know, he goes two miles and is like, I thought we were getting out of here. And I was like, I don't know. Why don't you have the kitchen staff go dig a tunnel? So Alton is overseeing the tunnel digging for a little while. So like, yeah, go keep yourself busy over here. Yeah, basically. They're like, here's a spoon. Dig to China. Probably literally. We should do that for our kids. <laughs> My grandmother used to do that to me. I believe that. As Alton is doing this tunneling, Miles comes across the sociologist Jones, the man who he blames for getting the convict boss system eliminated from the prison. And Miles wants to murder Jones, but Jones talks him out of it by saying that he will act as a negotiator. Oh, man, this guy's pretty smart. Yeah, really is. It's like he knows how people work or something. And so eventually the warden comes back to the prison after the guards, wives, and families start showing up at his house. And he's like, okay, I've got to figure this out. And so Miles comes out and demands that he get 30 reporters or he's going to start killing hostages. Why does he want reporters? Like, what is his end game with all this? Well, he wanted, okay, so he told Alton he wanted to escape. But now he's backtracking and saying that they're protesting prison conditions. So he's just like backtracking, making up a reason? Yeah. Pretty much. So, the National Guard, meanwhile, has started gathering on the college campus that's about four miles away. And then, miraculously, by the next morning, the press has appeared. And there are people from London that have flown to Deer Lodge, Montana, to cover this prison riot. In 1950s. Miles like, says he's fighting for better conditions and just wants to be heard. Obviously. But promises all the hostages would die if any action was taken against the prison. And then to prove his point, he parades Jones back and forth in front of the windows while holding him at knife point, like with a knife to his throat. Oh, yeah. Lovely. So just another day at the office. <laughs> Poor Jones. So the sociologist Jones was sent out to get the reporters and bring them back into the jail so they could document these horrible conditions that these prisoners are living in. Which, to be fair... They probably were. Yeah. They're probably not great. This is in Deer Lodge, Montana in 1959. Which has no relation to the terrible conditions that prisoners were No, I mean, it's not like it would be on the the radar. It's not like a prison in New York where there's a lot of people coming and going. Like, it's in the middle of nowhere. If it was awful, no one would know about it. And so, Miles tells the sociologist he has to be back with the reporters in eight minutes or he's going to start killing hostages. Eight the number eight again hmm Hmm. (laughs) i smell conspiracy definitely so they brought in three reporters from like the associated press and reuters and a spokane radio station and they brought them in and they interviewed inmates and documented the conditions and left without incident Miles was still not like, okay, now we're done. We were yeah, I'm still not seeing the end game. Like, no. what is he trying to get to? I don't know. Attention? I don't, I don't, I really don't understand. So 36 hours after it all started, the National Guard came in and ended the riot. 
a man with a National Guard fired a World War II bazooka at the Southwest Tower. And then they fired submachine guns into the hole that it had made because they had intelligence that said that's where Smart and Miles had holed up. They're not holding anything back. They're literally firing bazookas. Someone's like, hey, uh, we got some bazookas in the back. And they're like, what are we ever going to use that for? I know. Ding! (laughs) Yay, military surplus going to the police. But that's a topic for another day. Most of the inmates were already in their cells and did not give the guardsmen any problems when they came into the prison. But Miles and Smart were still up in the tower. All the hostages emerged unharmed. This is all over except getting them out. So they rush up the stairs to the tower and find that Miles has shot Smart and then himself rather than be taken. Oh, it's the death of the lovers. Yeah. Very Romeo and Juliet. yeah. All right. I'm ready for the movie. Baz Luhrmann, we're talking to you. Give us a call. But let's talk about the psychology required to pull off that murder-suicide at the end, huh? Yeah, that is interesting. I mean, like I kept saying, you know, what was his end game? What was he trying to get? I don't know if he really had one. I think he wanted to be the king of the prison. Like, I think he wanted it to be like its own state or its own country, and he wanted to be the ruler. He wanted sovereignty, and he wanted to be king. And if he couldn't have that, like, what were they going to do? Execute him? He killed himself. He did the same thing. Or put him in prison? He loved prison. Like, what, what was the motivation? It's like, it's just a final, like, fuck you. And to kill smart, too. Now, Alton survived, and he was um, paroled in 66 and was never incarcerated again. Yeah, I think the psychology behind prisons and prisoners is extremely interesting. Psychological effects of being imprisoned are huge. Absolutely. And you know, this makes me think of the ever-so-classic Stanford prison experiment. Okay, that's right up there with Kitty Genovese. If you've taken Psych 101, you've read about it. Yes, you have heard about this, but chances are you don't know all of the details. No, because a blurb can only hold so much. So the Stanford Prison Experiment was done in August of 1971. The psychologist Philip Zimbardo was going to do a study looking at inherent personality traits of prisoners and guards as the chief cause of abusive behavior in prisoners. So his hypothesis Mm -hmm. was that if a guard was a good person, he would be a good guard. Right. He would treat everyone with respect and kindly and not abuse anybody. And same with prisoners. They had specific things that were built into them. And interestingly, this was funded by the U.S. Office of Naval Research, looking into conflicts between military guards and prisoners. Nothing that the military has ever funded will ever surprise me again, ever. Hey, DARPA has come out with a lot of amazing things. No, I meant like... Like the internet. I meant like what they're putting money into. I'm like, okay, yeah, giving people acid, things like that. Okay, sure. After our acid episode, nothing surprises me. So they put out an ad looking for college students to participate in a prison simulation experiment. They actually had 70 people respond. Mm Mm-hmm. And after putting them through psychological tests, looking through their history, they found 24 males that were psychologically stable, had no history of psychological problems, drug abuse, incarceration, criminal activity, anything. Okay. So they were trying to find like your most basic 
Bitches. Middle class white dude, which is what they found. They found 24 of them. There are only 24. <laughs> so they paid them $15 a day. It's not bad in 71, I guess. So you split the group up, half guards, half prisoners. All right. Nine guards, nine prisoners, three alternates for each group. Okay. Zimbardo, the psychologist, put himself as the superintendent and named an undergraduate TA as the warden. And he designed this experiment to really induce disorientation, depersonalization, de-individualization of the prisoners. He took the guards in on a day before and set up like an orientation. They didn't have a lot of specific training, and that's important. Because they weren't given a lot of instruction. They wanted to see what would happen. But... This is like the robber's cave experiment. <laughs> no, it, it has some similar ideas. They were instructed not to physically harm the prisoners. Okay. Or restrict their food or water. Okay. But to quote, he said, You can create in the prisoners feelings of boredom, a sense of fear to some degree. You can create a notion of arbitrariness and that their life is totally controlled by us, by the system, you, me. They'll have no privacy. We're going to take away their individuality in various ways. In general, what all this leads to is a sense of powerlessness. That is, in the situation, we'll have all the power and they'll have none. Us versus them, immediately. And I think it's so interesting that he's going to be included on one side. As a researcher, I would say that that's kind of unethical. Right, it sets it up as kind of a non-biased approach, which comes into play for sure. And so the guards were given uniforms, batons... Ooh, fancy. Yeah, but can you like can you believe they were actually given like weapons? Well, I was about to say that's like all they have, like all the police force has in some countries, you know, like they that's they're as powerful as any law enforcement agency that's not the United States, you know. Right, like, authority and a baton. Yeah. And they were even given mirrored sunglasses so that they could not make eye contact with the prisoners. This is seventy one, you know they look like a bunch of like porn star cop things with like the porn mustache and like the photos of this experiment this was photographed videotaped you can see it all online it's really intriguing fascinating disturbing and you'll see why so the people that were assigned to the prison group you know i didn't mention they were randomly assigned so they didn't get to choose whether they were a guard or a prisoner no no cake or death option. No. It was randomly assigned. Okay. So they didn't pick like more sadistic people to be prisoners and more, you know, altruistic like that. people to be guard. Yeah. Okay. Right. Um, so the prisoners were arrested at their homes by the Palo Alto police force. They were No, they were yes, not. They were pulled out of their homes, handcuffed, put in the back of the car. Brought into the police station, completely booked. They fingerprinted them, they mug shots, all that. I cannot imagine that happening. It doesn't go all the way, like to to being like the real experience, because you're you're allowed to know what your crime is. You're allowed to have a lawyer. You're allowed to. Well, they are so they are told that they had a crime. It was burglary. Okay, so no one's a murderer. No, they're all assigned burglary. That makes sense. But no trial or anything. They're just immediately incarcerated. True. Okay. And like I said, they set it up really to be very disorienting. They blindfolded them. Why? Brought And brought them into the prison one at a time. They strip searched them and de-loused them with a spray. 
They were greeted by the warden, who conveyed the seriousness of their offense and reiterated their new status as prisoners. This idea was based on the real intake of prisoners from photos that were taken in Texas prisons. Just like the guards were put in specific uniforms to give them that role. And there's actually really interesting research about how your clothing does affect how you feel and what you do. Like, this is an aside, but I took people and put them in lab coats. And saw that just even just wearing a lab coat made you feel like more self-assured. I don't wear a lab coat, by the way. Anyway. That's funny. I wonder what high heels do. There's got to be a study on that. But these prisoners were giving like ill-fitting smocks. They wore no like underwear or anything. They had chains put around their ankles. So it wasn't like they were put in shackles, but they just had this chain with a lock put on, I guess, to kind of symbolize... Uh, that they were imprisoned. Mm-hmm. Just another reminder. And they were giving stocking caps made out of women's nylons to kind of symbolize the shaving of the heads. And so, again, all this depersonalizes the inmates. And they were also all given numbers, which were sewn onto their smocks, and the guards only referred to them by number. Was that, like, something that went through an orientation? Like, that wasn't just some random result of the experiment? Okay. Yeah, that was, like, set up. Okay. Experiment 626. That's the Hawaii episode. Oh, God. Flashbacks. So, day one went just fine. Okay. Day two did not. Oh. You had a good run there, boys. Day two resulted in what some people call a riot. (laughs) No, it did not. Not day two. Day two. I would call it more like a rebellion. So, So no bazookas. (laughs) No bazookas, unfortunately. So, the prisoners took their mattresses, blockaded the cell door, and refused to follow instructions. So each shift only had three guards on for nine prisoners. The guards were already taken to their roles. The other guards volunteered to come in early, stay late, try to suppress this rebellion. They actually used fire extinguishers and sprayed the prisoners down and pushed them back from the doors so that they could end the rebellion. So, were the guards housed together during their off time, like when they were not on duty? They were not. Okay. So, the guards obviously realized this was a problem. They needed to take control of the situation. They needed to be the authority in this situation. So, one of them suggested, hey, we should use psychological tactics because we can't have all these guards on duty at all times. Because we go to Stanford and we know what psychological tactics are. Right. They stripped them naked. No, they did not. Took their mattresses, refused to give them food. Wait, I thought they weren't allowed to do that. I know. They would not allow them to wash or brush their teeth. Oh my God, that would be torture. And so one method they came up with for some like psychological tactics is they established a privileged cell. So they took the prisoners that were not involved in this incident and put them in there and let them have all the comforts of prison. <laughs> And were given special food and special treatment. Of course, this helped break up the... Like camaraderie? Definitely. Yeah. But then they went even a step further and later randomly switched up the prisoners in the privileged cell. What do you mean randomly? They just randomly picked some people. Oh my God, that would destabilize like an entire government, let alone nine college kids. Like, I mean, 
Exactly. Oh my god. <laughs> exactly. I thought they were like all snitches, informants. It completely broke down. There's no the snitching. Solidarity. It's been two days. It's been two days. What are they snitching on? <laughs> so while the solidarity of the prisoners was completely broken down, this incident, you know, going through a trial together, we've talked about this before, mm-hmm. brought all of the guards closer together. Broified the guards. For sure. Okay, tech with term. Their, with their mirrored aviators. Yes, broified the guards. Okay. Even after two days, things started to break down pretty quickly. Yeah. I'd say if you have a riot and you're like establishing a new system of government within 48 hours, you've things are going poorly, but continue. So one of the prisoners, number 8612, began to act crazy, to scream and curse, go into a rage that seemed out of control. It took quite a while before we became convinced that he was really suffering and that we had to release him. Even at this time, 36 hours into the experiment, the guards... The TA playing the warden. Even Zambardo, the psychologist running the experiment, were already establishing this authoritarian role. They didn't buy it. They thought he was just, like, conning them. I would have thought he was conning me. But you could get out at any time. All you had to say was, I quit, and get out. Why didn't he just say he quit? Because they established the psychology. So he was going apeshit and he was just screaming everything he could think of, but he couldn't like either remember or reason that he needed to say I quit or exactly. he didn't want to quit. Well, that is an interesting point that we'll get to. Okay. I can wait. <laughs> so they also did prison counts. And this was a way to establish authority. They'd line all the prisoners up. They'd have to say their numbers. Any sort of error resulted in punishment. They had to do like protracted exercises, like push-ups. Which Zimbardo later commented that they found out after this that that was actually a common punishment in concentration camps. <sighs> yeah. Okay. But, you know, we talked about some of the other punishments they did. They had a sanitation bucket in their cell. So, somewhere to poop. A bucket? A bucket. Well, so they had a restroom. And they'd have to ask the guards to use it. But after lockdown, the guards decided they would not allow them to go to the restroom had made them go in the bucket. And so if you were not cooperating, you would not get to empty your bucket. That violates so many health codes. Oh, yes. This breaks, like, every ethical and moral law ever. So, you know, they commented later that really a third of the guards were exhibiting these sadistic tendencies, even two days in, and they just continued to worsen. Like I said, Zimbardo himself, the head psychologist, was really getting caught up. I'm sorry. I keep like thinking about the arrest and like how maddening that must have been. And like one of my questions is like, did they get that phone call? Like, did they have a chance to say goodbye to their families? Did their families know where they were? Were they like kidnapped? Were their families like going to the police and being like, hey, my son's missing? And the police are like, no, he's not. He's in jail. Don't worry. <laughs> You're like, what was going on with the families? Well, so, you know, they did sign consent. Okay. And the families knew where they were. And they even had a family visitation day. <laughs> okay. So on, I think it was day three, they had the family visitation day and they cleaned up all the shit. (laughs) Thank God my mom's coming. I can finally dump my poop out. They cleaned up the jail, cleaned up the prisoners. But before the prisoners could even enter the visiting area, they had to discuss their son's case with the warden. Okay, so 
you come in and you're like coming to see your son who's been kidnapped for an experiment. Okay, so you go to talk to a college kid. Yep. <laughs> and you say to the college kid, I'm here to see my son that you've kidnapped for an experiment. And they say, well, first of all, you need to understand that what he did is very wrong. Is that basically what you're telling me? Pretty much. And they like agree to continue with this charade. No, they do. I think the whole point of that was to have the parents like buy into the experiment, like to play the role they would need to play. To exhibit the appropriate amounts of concern and remove, maybe? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Okay. And they also had these like arbitrary rules they set up, again, just to build up a authentic response where like only two people at a time could come in for only 10 minutes. And, you know, everyone pretty much complied with the rules. Like the parents who were not part of the actual experiment? Like yeah. they were just like, sure, no problem. I'll do what you say, you crazy man. Yeah, they bought into the authority that was established. So I can only see my son that you've kidnapped for an experiment. <laughs> like, I'm sorry. <laughs> that's what's happened here um, for 10 minutes. And that's cool. Yeah, uh, you know, one parent did complain, but then when they complained, they went through the system that was established. They're like, we want to talk to the superintendent. They put a note in the complaint box, or like the comment box. <laughs> Basically. This is when Zimbardo says he started to see that he was really getting pulled into this. And this is what, like day? Like three. Three? Oh, God. So they were worried about how their son looked, and that he looked really rough, and they'd never seen him look like this before. And he responded by shifting the blame from the situation to her son. He said, what's the matter with your boy? Does he sleep well? Then he looked at the father and said, don't you think your boy can handle this? Oh, mm, like a very underhanded jab at his own masculinity, like very well crafted there, sir. Yes. And so, of course, the father, you know, bristles and says, of course he can. He's a real tough kid, a leader. And he turns to the mother and says, come on, honey, we've wasted enough time already. And he turns back to Zimbardo. See you again at the next visiting time. Oh, my God. That's amazing. So these are white upper class parents in the 70s. Yeah, definitely. I can't imagine them just like going along. This is like hippy dippy bullshit to me. Like this is something that's like almost new agey in a way. And like them just being like, of course, like them fitting this into their worldview that quickly. Oh, no, no. Oh, no. I think it very much fits with our psychology. We are going to go along with whatever we say is the rules, the law. It's how we are built. It's how we're raised. You know, we are made from a very early age to follow the rules. So I guess what I'm looking at is like they're, what they're exposed to and like their actual like anthropological or sociological conditioning. And what you're saying is that this is even more primal than that. This is like almost a biological impulse to go along. Well, no, I'm saying that it is conditioning. Yeah, it definitely is conditioning. You're right. You're conditioned to comply with authority. But this is imaginary authority. It doesn't matter. But it, do- it matters so much. All authority is imaginary. <gasps> you ruined my life. <laughs> All authority is established by our social constructs. And so they bought into this construct. That that's where I'm missing it. It's like, why would you ever? Because you like you go in and you know it's pretend. 
okay, so we authority exists because we agree to ignore the fact that it's pretend. Right. We agree to the authority, whether it's conscious or not. But this, you're going in and you're like, okay, I know my son's going to play dress up for a little while, but I'm worried because he looks like he's going to die. And they're like, he's a tough kid, right? And you're like, yes, and now I recognize your pretend authority. Well, they establish it by having the rules and procedures and making them go through all of this and making and talking about the crimes, the imaginary crimes their son has committed. And like moving some guilt onto them. Like, didn't you raise him right? Ugh, it's just, it's terrible. And Zimbardo, along with the guards and the prisoners, just continue to get pulled into this. There's a rumor going around. Around the prison. Yes, that one of the prisoners that they released, who did say, I'm out of here, was going to come back and free all the other prisoners. I so would have done that. You forget that all they have to do is say, I'm done, and they get to leave. They forget that too, don't they? Exactly. Ugh so bad and so first they have this big strategy session to try to figure out what they're gonna do like the guards all of them with zimbardo all of them so this but this is just like the the authority team not the prison team right zimbardo and the guards the warden okay and they decide they're gonna place an informant so they do that and they are still worried about it because they think he might be a double agent not necessarily but like agent garbo so he even goes so far as to move the prisoners, dismantle the jail, and move it to another part of the building. So by the way, this was all took place in the basement of the psychology building on Stanford's campus. Okay, so if you've ever been to the basement of a college campus's halls, they kind of look like prisons. Like, I'm not seeing so it as much of a stretch. Yeah, yeah. okay. And so they wait, there's shit in the basement of the psych building. Yes. Oh, God, that just ah, oh, okay. you would think that would waft up. Are uh, classes going on? So he had the jail dismantled, prisoners moved, and he sat there. And there are pictures of this. He sat there and waited. Zimbardo, Zimbardo sat there and waited for the, the Maverick. Yes, he was waiting for John McCain. So he sat there waiting for him to come. And... With the shit buckets? (laughs) And he never showed up. He never showed up. So this some prisoner, you think, started the rumor just to fuck with him? It's hard to say. But, oh my God, I hope that happened. And I hope he's so secretly satisfied. (laughs) So I think, you know, these incidents really had Zimbardo start to think a little bit. But then there was another incident with a prisoner. 819. He was feeling sick. He refused to eat. Eventually, got him. he got him to come out of his cell to talk. And he just broke down, crying hysterically. So Zimbardo actually had a little compassion. He took him in another room, took the chain off of his ankle, took his stocking cap off, and he told him, like, just rest here for a little while. I'm going to get you some food. We're going to take you to the doctor. One of the guards lined up the other prisoners outside of the door. And had them chant, Prisoner 819 is a bad prisoner. Because of what Prisoner 819 did, my cell is a mess, Mr. Correctional Officer. And they shouted in unison dozens of times. What had he done? Just, like, cried? I think he started to kind of lose it, really. Oh. And, you know, in the past, the first day or two, they'd make him chant, and it was kind of fun, jokey, more thing. You know, but now it was organized. 
There and targeted. A, like, it yeah. was... There was a marked conformity and compliance. And a single voice, this is Zambardo's, a single voice was saying, 819 is bad. So he came back and tried to get the prisoner to leave. Like, 819 to quit? Yeah. Take him to the doctor. But the prisoner refused. He wanted to go back and prove that he was not a bad prisoner. And at this point, Zimbardo says, listen, you are not 819. You are your name. And my name is Dr. Zimbardo. I am a psychologist. I am not a prison superintendent. And this is not a real prison. This is just an experiment. And those are students, not prisoners, just like you. Let's go. Is that when they quit? No. Oh, God. The prisoner did stop crying, looked up at him like a small child awakened from a nightmare. This is from him. And replied, okay, let's go. So there was one more incident with a prisoner before the ultimate end. Uh, prisoner number 416. He was a new prisoner. He was one of the alternates that was brought in to take place of the many prisoners that kept being taken out. At some point, they had to start using like the alternate guards as alternate prisoners. Like They've gone through them now. And this new prisoner expressed concern. Of course, remember, he was not indoctrinated as much. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And he went on hunger strike. And he was put in solitary confinement in the closet. Now, what do you mean? There's, they're, okay, they're not in a real jail. Right. So they did not build a solitary confinement. Like in their setup. Right. So the guards just took him and... Shoved him in a closet. Oh, my God. That has to be in a handbook somewhere that it's not okay. <laughs> There wasn't a handbook. There needed to be a handbook. The guard said he would be released from solitary confinement only if the prisoners gave up their blankets and slept on the bare mattress. And he was seen kind of as a traitor by the other prisoners. Why? What did he do? He was going against the norm. <gasps> and so guess what? So the- they didn't do it. They left him in the closet? Eventually. They left 416 in the closet? Yes. Eventually, Zimbardo and his team went and got him out. <laughs> Did he come out and say, this is my husband. He's Mr. Broom, and I love him. <laughs> and we're going to take over the prison. <laughs> no. Okay. Have some cake. <laughs> there were a lot of people that were observing this experiment. Over 50 people. Like, as it happened? Yes. And no one was saying, like, perhaps it's gone too far. Well, one person eventually did. Okay, yay, that person. So a grad student, Christina Maslik, who actually was Zimbardo's girlfriend and later wife. She was the only one of the 50 people to be like, dude, what the fuck are you doing? Christina is my new favorite. I love her. But, you know, she... Brought up questions of morality about the experiment. And honestly, just from reading it, it seems like Zimbardo, it was going to happen eventually. I mean, just these incidents kept occurring. But then, of course, he let it continue to happen. So you think he would have called it early, even if she hadn't spoken up, is what you're saying? No, not necessarily. But I think there was the little tinge in the back of his mind. Right, like with the, the prisoner where they chanted, like where he was trying to be humane and he was able to come back to himself a little bit, but no one else was on board. Right. And so it forced him back into his role, didn't it? Yeah. And then, of course, you know, there's always that problem with not wanting to give up an experiment. Yeah. I mean, think of the paperwork. Oh, my God. Well, just like you put all this effort, this funding into it, 
And then you just don't get anything. I was just thinking about like writing the grants and the formulations yeah. and like getting all the consent forms and vetting everybody. Oh my God, no. I get that. <laughs> Sorry. So this was ended after only six days. Well, how long were they going to run it? A week? Fourteen. Oh, okay. <laughs> so it's a bit early, you're saying. And so a lot of psychology and theories have come out of this. There are, of course, a lot of detractors, you know, saying it wasn't a very representational selection, and that, of course, is a bunch of middle-class white dudes, and so that doesn't represent what could really happen. But I think some of that kind of takes away from some of the important points that you can see in this short little experiment. Okay, I would argue the opposite. I would say that this is the only way you could have done it. If you had mixed backgrounds and ethnicities, then people would be saying like, oh, it's just a pre-existing dynamic or whatever. Like how, And then you randomly assign. Yeah, you know, I didn't think of that. This is very true. And it, it would actually take one of the variables out, which is a good thing. Yeah, in, no, in that's science. what you want. And like also, if, if you pick 24 people... Like, you have to pick, like, the one, you know, Indian-American guy from both sides. You know, you have to have an Indian-American guard and an Indian-American inmate. You know, since you only have, you have the guards rotating through three at a time. Like, it's just not possible. It has to be all the same. Yeah, I think that in this type of small experiment, it actually takes variables out, which is what you want. So, some of the things it proved or favored, because you really can't prove anything with this experiment, is situational attribution of behavior so this disproved his dispositional attribution hypothesis so basically saying that how people acted was related to the situation that they were put in that wasn't his hypothesis though his hypothesis was that it was based on pre-existing no you're right. uh, personality attributes yeah. yeah he disproved it so you had guards feeling that they had to show their dominance and prisoners losing their self-identity and control and that caused them to stop responding and give up. They accepted their roles as lesser humans. They also formed community. They did. As you know, that's an important point. That they did. There was honor among thieves. Are we going to say it again? No, because it's not really what it is. It's they unified. Yeah, they unified. This also touches on cognitive dissonance theory by Leon Festinger, a psychologist. The basic idea behind that is that as humans, you know, we want an internal consistency. Mm -hmm. We want our internal self to line up with our external self. Yeah. That is how we are best. That's how we're happiest. Right. And whenever that is not true, we start to have mental stress. And so when you have these contradictory beliefs and ideas... At the same time, or if you're performing an action that is contradictory, you start to have this dissonance. Mm -hmm. This inconsistency motivates somebody to try and reduce the dissonance. It hurts. As I'm listening to this, I'm imagining that I am a kid who's attending college in California in the 70s. And somebody pulls up on my lawn and tells me I have to go to jail. And my whole life, my mom's told me that I'm really special and I can be anything I want to be. And I have dreams and aspirations and everything's going great. I have two weeks where I'm not working that I can go volunteer for an experiment. So obviously something's going pretty okay. 
And suddenly I'm put in a uniform, told my name is a number and my hair is taken away and I have to wear an ugly smock. I made just shit in a bucket and everyone's screaming at me and telling me what scum I am. And the only way to reduce stress is to be like, okay, fine, I'm scum. I'm scum. Okay, I'm scum. Because then at least I don't have to keep up with that pre-existing identity that was creating the stress within me. Right. You start to conform to what you're told. And so one reaction by Prisoner 416, he said, I began to feel that I was losing my identity, that the person that I called Clay, the person who put me in this place, the person who volunteered to go into this prison, because it was a prison to me, it still is a prison to me. I don't regard it as an experiment or a simulation because it was a prison run by psychologists instead of run by the state. I began to feel that the identity, the person that I was, that had decided to go to prison was distant from me, was remote, until finally I wasn't that. I was 416. I was really my number. Okay, so there he's expressing a very clear attempt to resolve cognitive dissonance, and it's the path of least resistance that will be chosen. So rather than bucking all the norms, confronting all the people that he would have to to get out, even if it's just saying I quit, he would lose status and lose approval and whatever within that system that he's already integrated in. It's easier. So he's facing the cognitive dissonance between his idea of clay, the human being pre-experiment, and prisoner 416. So in order to reduce the stress between the two and get out of that liminal state, he becomes 416. So another really important point that we've talked about a lot already is that power of authority. We've talked about how it, you know, it's established. It's it's imaginary. It's something that is socially agreed upon. One point that's made about this is, you know, why were the guards acting like this? These are psychologically stable, quote, normal people. And so one thing is that the guards were, you know, mimicking what they'd seen in media. They were trying to be these, like, tough guys. And one guard, David Eshelman, who the prisoners had nicknamed John Wayne because he was such a tough, hard ass. They already had nicknames. In six days, they got nicknames. Yes. Amazing. He said, what came over me was not an accident. It was planned. I set out with a definite plan in mind to try to force the action, force something to happen, so that the researchers would have something to work with. After all, what could they possibly learn from guys sitting around like it was a country club? I consciously created this persona. I was in all kinds of drama productions in high school. I was about to say he had to be a drama major. College. (laughs) He had to be a theater major. So, you know, like, I was kind of running my own experiment there. How far can I push these things? And how much abuse will these people take before they say knock it off? But the other guards didn't stop me. They seemed to join in. They were taking my lead. Not a single guard said, I don't think we should do this. All that has to happen for evil to triumph for good is for good men to do nothing. Sure, the importance of leadership in these types of situations is really evident in this. So if you don't have someone coming in and saying, hey, we didn't say it was okay not to feed them. Or just even someone setting a good model could be so important. Like, yeah, that's an interesting question, and that would be a whole different experiment. And let's face it, we're never going to have another one of these. Like, Well, actually, it was redone no. <laughs> by the BBC. It was, on, it was like a reality show. Oh, my God. Reality shows are so this. <laughs> well, and speaking of that, you know, the Hawthorne effect is a big component of this. Are they doing things differently because they're being watched? Our actions are changed by being watched. 
that's pretty obvious and tons of research proving it but to me it seems obvious no it does seem obvious and it's also probably why teenagers behave so strangely because they have that imaginary audience and god help us social media and that's a whole different story my thought behind this is okay you're being watched you're expected to be a guard but man those guards are willing to comply with this really screwed up experiment without barely saying a word. Okay, well, now that I've accidentally said reality TV in my head and I'm thinking about it, there's always that one asshole on every reality show who, like, wants to cause trouble. I watched Real World when I was in middle school, and there's always a Ruby in Real World Hawaii, okay? There's always that person who is, like, going to be a dick. And oh, I remember it, her. I was, like, 12, and she was, like, taking her top off in the hot tub. Yeah, and it was blurred <laughs> out and pixelated, and you were still, like, so hot. So hot. <laughs> there's there's a performer in every group. They're, they should have screened out anybody with past drama experience for the experiment. And something that's always mentioned is right after this experiment occurred, several riots happened, including at Attica. It was a huge, bloody riot. And it's, it's not like the prisoners in Attica had been reading about the Stanford prison experiment. No, no, no. Okay. It's just like, wow, that's apropos. An interesting note, after the Abu Ghraib incident that occurred a few years ago, Zambardo was brought in to talk about it, and he actually testified as a expert for the defendant. Dude, I think he's qualified. Like, I mean, like, if anybody does have something to say about what authority and power can do to a, a an otherwise rational human being maybe him but he does have a ted talk if you want to go listen to it you could pause and go do that or you can go pause and go watch videos of this experiment there's a website specifically set up to talk about the stanford prison experiment like it's set up as an educational website it's actually really well done i highly suggest you check it out if you want to learn more i find this all very troubling it makes it so obvious that prison creates a mindset of inferiority in the people who are incarcerated. Oh, for sure. I think that it's interesting how quickly that happened. It was all established. How quickly everyone bought into their roles. And you have to imagine that it's even more accelerated in a real life situation because everything exists before you get there. You know, like you're coming in with guards who have been there for years and prisoners who might, you know, be lifers. And you're just trying to figure out how to survive. You have to buy into that culture whenever you go into the prison. Well, there's some interesting writing by a folklorist named Bruce Jackson. Bruce Jackson has done some amazing things with prisons over the last 40 years. He is a maverick, let's call him. Right, well, he was a folklorist that started looking into prisons. He was very interested in prison folk songs that was really started by one of my favorite i guess you can call him a folklorist alan lomax Mm -hmm. and he you know was this northeastern guy and he like grabbed his recorder and he just headed down south in the early 1900s and started recording all of these folk songs he has a better name than folklorist would you like to know what it is ethnomusicologist yeah that's the one but you can go and listen to interviews with him. There's a great interview with Terry Gross. Terry Gross interviews are always great. And, um, of course, you can listen to his massive archives online. Fantastic. But he followed in his footsteps and said he was just going to go head down south and start documenting the folklore of prisons. 
And he wound up in Texas. Of course he did. Everything ends up in Texas. He wound up in Huntsville, Texas. Okay. And he has some just amazing writing about it. Um, and also amazing photography. Oh my God. Such compelling photographs. They absolutely are. Um, but he was writing about prison folklore. He was talking about how, you know, we've talked about folklore plenty on the show and how you know, in the free world, you have folklore that is related to your values and folkways and there's determined by geography and society and occupation it's sort of spontaneous well it's spontaneous but it's also related to where you are and just what you grew up in the milieu of your life right but for each individual it's going to be situational yes and a single person can switch between a number of identities so in that way that's what i'm saying it is more of a spontaneous collection of folk knowledge very true yes but in prison completely different Correct. You know, one author, uh, Irving Goffman, said the central feature of total institutions can be described as a breakdown of the barriers of ordinarily separating these three spheres of life. So your prison folklore is separate from your free world folklore, and that's their terminology. It satisfies the need that you have while you're in prison versus the need you'd have outside of prison. They're very mm-hmm. separated. A prisoner that gets out of prison is not going to share these folkways with these like free worlders. I just came up with that, but I like it. Sounds I like, like it. sounds like water world. I was about to say it sounds post-apocalyptic or something. It arises from the cognitive dissonance of trying to reconcile your outside identity with your ascribed identity while you're in prison and still trying to retain some level of autonomy. So this is conflict resolution through culture. So there's sort of a stigma associated with having an intimate knowledge of this folklore as well, correct? Right. Like I said, you wouldn't share this with other people. This is very much situational. It's where you are. You're only going to use this there or with prisoners on the outside world. Or when you're talking to a screenwriter who is desperate to know what real prisoners sound like. Well, also in the Stanford Prison Experiment, they did have ex-convicts make sure that it was very, like, prison-like. Okay. So, and then also there. So one thing that Jackson describes in his writing is sort of the social structure that generated within a prison. This paper was actually written in the 60s. Right. But when I was reading it, all I could think about it was... When I was speaking with my friend who was incarcerated, he sort of described it in a similar way. Okay, so what is this, what is a strata? So you have like the non-criminal people who are incarcerated because they have done something wrong and been convicted of a crime, but they really just want to keep their heads down, do their time, and get it over with. They're not really party to the goings-on of the underworld, whether they're incarcerated or they're on their own recognizance. Right, so on the outside world, they don't consider themselves criminals. They're not part of the underbelly of society. And in prison, they hold that up. Right, and it's interesting because when you think of this and you're hearing it, I'm sure it's like, oh, like Martha Stewart or whatever. But surprisingly, Jackson states that a lot of people who've committed homicide fall into this category. It's sort of that crimes of passion uh, or situational circumstance dictated that that was the best thing to do. Right. If that situation had not occurred, it wouldn't have happened. You have this level that's like repeat offender, but not worried about 
prison commendations. Jackson refers to them as the thieves. So this is like your white collar criminals. Yeah, con artists, I think, kind yeah, of fall in that category. Um, cat burglars. And one thing that he says that I think is really interesting is a lot of like tradesmen fall into this category, sort of like locksmiths and things like that, that would have some expertise that allowed them to continue plying their trade and being handsomely rewarded for it when people were not asking them to do it for them. And then you have the convict. And he describes them as the hardcore member of the convict subculture that finds his reference groups inside the institution and seeks status through means available in the prison environment. The convict seeks privileges, which he believes will enhance his position in the inmate hierarchy. And that is to contrast what the thief does that seeks privileges that will make doing time easier or help him get out sooner. Right, these are the guys that with a high recidivism rate and so they're the ones that are most highly steeped in the culture and the lore. They're the ones that are using the slang that know how to work the prison. Right, so to use a technical term, the thief can code switch where the convict cannot. So they have a very distinct set of personalities. You know, they have their inside self and their outside self. And they don't seek status within the population. They might, if it will make doing time easier, they might get involved with, you know, a certain gang or whatever, if it will help them do their time in peace. But they're not going to do anything that really blatantly pisses off the guards either. You know, they're not seeking conflict. So as I was reading this, I couldn't help but be reminded of Alton and Miles. Yeah, Miles is definitely the convict. He wants to be in prison. He lives to be in prison, which is weird. And Alton's more the thief. He wants to get out. He might reoffend, But he doesn't, actually. I think he had before. Wow. <laughs> he wants out. He does things like participating in the prize fights, which you know gives him an outlet and also allows him to be well-respected without actually having to piss anybody off. And when he sees that they're not actually going to escape during the riots, he's like, ah, enough. So, you know, one of the big ideas, you know, lore, folklore, myths about thieves is, of course, the honor among thieves, mm -hmm. the, as he calls it, the code. Oh, the code. Is it like the hobo code? So, yeah, the code is sort of this idea that inmates will not screw over other inmates. As you were talking about 416, it's all I could think. It's like, no, I have to go back and prove to them. Like, I have to go sort of be part of that population and prove that I can contribute something. Yeah, and while informants are always going to be in prisons, that idea is still around. They're like, no snitching. Snitches get stitches. Ooh, you're scary. Arr. Right. The, there's this idea that you don't tell on anybody else and you let people get by with what they are trying to get away with because that's just what you do. That's the honorable thing to do in this culture. And of course, there are a lot of really humorous anecdotes that are passed around inside prison walls that relate specifically to the culture and help diffuse the stress of the situation again and kind of function to bind prisoners together over shared experiences and subvert the power structure. Very subversive jokes and stories that are passed around. 
You know, there are a lot of stories about stupid guards or prisoners who are just absolutely crazy and get away with everything, that kind of stuff. And then there's also numerous instances of prisoners kind of creating this Argo slang jargon that's used specifically within that culture, within that setting. And it's not used outside because it's a very specific marker of having been part of that culture, which is coding of deviance. Yeah, and so one example is like in Texas, they had lots of slang that he was able to document, like this script used for commissary purchase called Chocho. Fire on the turn row and the warden's coming. Thunder on the turn row and the director of the system is coming. A big bitch is the life sentence and the habitual criminal act. I thought the kite stuff was so interesting. Like a kite is a letter? And a snitch kite is a letter that has been sent to a warden informing on another prisoner. Yeah, there's an interesting idea about name usage here. And it made me think of uh, the Stanford experiment. And so most guards and administrators are going to use like their last name or their number to where first name is very familiar. Mm-hmm. And so by using nicknames, there's like a very middle ground. And so we saw in the Stanford experiment, this happened. Few days. John Wayne. Nicknames. Yeah. Yeah. It also gave inmates an opportunity to kind of comment on one another and their guards. And one great example is in Texas, some inmates were taking up a collection for one of the other prisoners that was being released after serving 12 years. Passed around saying, oh, the man being taken up for was Roger Allen. He was getting out and no one gave any money. No one knew who he was. Then they finally realized that it was Hucklebuck. Oh, it's Hucklebuck. Why didn't you just say Hucklebuck? And the kitty swelled. He's a good kid. Nice guy. So one feature of the Argo or jargon used in prisons is there are a lot of pejorative terms for homosexual activity. There's also sort of a setup where there's a very defined dichotomy between people who would have been openly homosexual on the outside and people who are only interested in homosexual activity when confined with a bunch of men. Yeah, so your queens, versus in the 60s, uh, I'm not sure what the terminology is now. Uh, Within prisons. Those are the free world homosexuals. Mm -hmm. And even at this time, they were treated with respect because they were honest. They were like, yeah, I'm gay. Cool. And they thought that was fine, especially compared to what was called the punks. Mm -hmm. And these were the guys that were... Just doing it in prison. They didn't feel that was right. They felt that that was like covert and dishonest and weak. It's so interesting. And it really does make you think about what that dynamic between Miles and Smart would have been like in the eyes of the other prisoners. Like, what did Alton think about it? It's a good question. You know, one of the prisoners even said, you know, he's not, you know, we don't like them because they're not man enough to admit what they are. Whereas the queens, which is a female word assigned to this population, they are man enough. And I love that. I think that there's something you're on an island or in a prison, you know, like you are more likely to be understanding and permissive. They were decades ahead of the rest of us. Bruce Jackson wrote that most prison administrations find that sex is the cause of violence and therefore punishment for participating. A few states actually add time to a man's sentence for homosexuality in prison, treating the problem as if it were free world crime and thus indicating that society's attitude toward homosexuality is sometimes more barbaric 
than that of the inmates. The inmate's like, hey, you know, you're saying who you are, and that's fine. <laughs> we all have our issues, and that's cool. You're man enough to admit that. Or I think it's almost like society says we're all fucked up, too, and we're actually pretty cool. Maybe so. <laughs> I think all of this, you know, all of this information, the, the ideas about prisoners, about what prison does to you, about the psychology that it can enforce, really leads us to look at what we're doing with our modern-day judicial system. I have lots of thoughts on the modern-day judicial system. And when I think about criminal justice, one of the phrases, like my word association, just goes straight to adversarial system. Okay, so I mean adversarial, I'm I'm thinking of the verses. Yeah, so like the state versus John Doe. It's a common law thing, so it's a very Anglo-American concept. And in an adversarial system, such as ours... The interests of both parties in a controversy are presented as arguments before a judge or jury or the fact-finding body. Each side is allowed to develop and present their arguments, gather and submit evidence, call and question witnesses within a very specific set of rules. The fact-finding body, the judge or the jury, is charged with attempting to maintain a passive, neutral attitude and stance throughout the entire proceeding. So this is our grand plan. What possible problems could there be with two sides competing for a win? I couldn't imagine. A few have come up. People have mentioned things. One or two. Yeah, a couple. Some of the criticisms cite the idea that these sorts of systems are more concerned with simply resolving the controversy than getting to the ultimate truth. And then, of course, I think uh, this is a fight. This is a battle. This is a versus. Mm -hmm. And if one person has no resources, except maybe a public defender, if they could get one. Well, yeah, everybody can get a public defender. Yeah, but sometimes those those offices are very underfunded. No, it's not a problem. Uh, Like, you will have representation. They will show up that day. Yeah, But the problem is... Okay, so the discrepancy in resources bothers me because I think that people who dedicate their lives to being public defenders are fucking heroes. Give them a medal. I adore them. Good job, you. But when you have a caseload like they do, when you're looking at dozens of cases, as opposed to the highly paid attorney who is receiving such an exorbitant fee that they can afford to take on... one, two, three cases at a time and fully dedicate themselves to parsing every bit of evidence and totally familiarizing themselves with the cases, that's the problem. It's not the quality of the attorney. It's the amount of work that they're expected to take on and the amount of time that they have to dedicate to each case. So you might have a public defender who's a brilliant lawyer, but if they are overloaded and cannot dedicate their mind and resources to your case in particular, you're not getting the full benefit of that attorney. And that was really illustrated for the public in a major way during the O.J. Simpson trial. So having like the amazing Johnny Cochran. Johnny Cochran and others. Oh yeah, he had a whole team. He had the dream team or the scheme team, depending on who you ask. It's hard to say that it's fair when your job is to convince people of your side of the story. And the system is set up in such a way that 
each side, the prosecution and the defense, are encouraged to present evidence that is favorable toward them. So you could have a case where there's DNA evidence and have a shit prosecutor who forgets to put it in or whatever, doesn't call that person to testify, the expert to testify, and it get left out because the defense doesn't have an obligation to bring it up. Evidence can be left out that is absolutely vital that would provide truth and give you a very real answer. Did this person commit the crime? Yes or no. If there's enough evidence to indict them, the exculpatory evidence doesn't have to be presented at trial. It would be done through an appellate process. And some people who favor the adversarial system and lament that people with lots of money get off scot-free say that because in this country you're innocent until proven guilty, you can't protect the innocent without accidentally protecting a few guilty people every now and then. Whoops! Wow. That's an amazing criticism. And another conflict that the system creates is it puts lawyers and attorneys in positions where they are required to attack factual evidence, experts, victims, victims' families, etc., if there's any chance that it will benefit their client. I recently saw a an article about defense attorneys with rape cases and how they were able to use social media of the victims to really affect their character. Sexual assault cases are very hard to prosecute, and any prosecutor will tell you that. And I think that, in my mind, when I'm thinking of the adversarial court system, I'm thinking of murder charges, where there's like a literal you know, body of like a corpse that we can look at and say that this person was beaten or whatever. And there's hard evidence. If you think about the adversarial system as something that doesn't have to exist and you start questioning it and you look at the way that rape cases are tried, it becomes impossible to fathom that this is a good idea because victims are put on trial every bit as much as the defendant because it's a he said, she said. And in an adversarial system, There has to be a winner and a loser. So it's not just, did he do it? It's, are you choosing to agree with her or agree with him? So we're set up in such a way that it is automatically us versus them, him versus her, etc. And that leads to that dynamic we saw expressed in the Stanford Prison Experiment, in the very structure of our courts. Well, so you can see how the structure of the courts really is set up to be really almost against the people. You know, it's very difficult to win a case where you don't have the resources to fight it. And if you continue on that path and look at our prison and jail system, it just furthers the case. The United States has a greater percentage of its population locked up than any other country in the world. This bars a few of the really tyrannical countries where we don't know the numbers, but it's still a ridiculous amount. It's four times higher than Spain and the United Kingdom. One in 30 men between 20 and 34 are jailed, and up to one in 13 in Georgia. I'm sorry, it sounded like you said one in 13. I'll give you an even worse number. One in nine African-American men in this age group. Or in jail. It just in Georgia? No, in general. In the United States. Oh my god. Okay. We spend over $600 billion a year 
on our jail system. I'm sorry, it sounded like you said billion. I did. <sighs> there are more jails and prisons in the United States than there are colleges with greater than 3,000. In 2009, there were 7.2 million people in prison or on probation. And you know how you talked about how the innocent until proven guilty thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know if that's really holding up because 62% of people held in jail are unconvicted. What is that? No, like they have not been convicted of a crime? Yes. So, how? How? Greater than 50% of them are held due to not being able to afford the bail of $2,500 or less. It makes me question of all those shady bail bonds places that I saw advertised on the way to our old house are really doing their job. Well, I question more if our judicial system is doing their job. Yeah, they should be held to a higher standard than like some of those spray painted signs. <laughs> so from the 80s to 2007, the national prison population has tripled. And this has occurred while crimes across the country have dramatically decreased. Okay, so the prison population is going up. Yes. Very much. Yes. But the crimes are going down. Yes, especially violent crimes. So how? How? Where are they coming from? What are they doing? Well, it's all started. Did they sign up for an experiment? No. <laughs> okay. It's all started with our war on crime. And war on drugs. Thank you, Nancy. Yeah, so in the early 80s, they began the mandatory minimum sentencing for drugs. Getting you like 15 years for having an ounce of pot. That kind of thing. Right now, over half of the inmates in federal prisons are serving time for non-violent drug offenses. Half? Half. This makes me like, okay, so when I was a kid, I secretly loved Dare Day. Like, dare, drug awareness, whatever it was, just say no, etc. I secretly loved it. I was really excited every time the dare officer came. Because it meant that, like, we were going to get to talk about slightly salacious stuff. I found it very titillating as an eight-year-old. And it makes me want to go back and, like, kick my younger self and be like, Don't buy it! It's a racket! They're just trying to incarcerate people! Well, so with that, you know, you have this... Large population of mostly low socioeconomic class, a lot of minorities. With that, 60-80% to of the inmate population has a history of substance abuse. Guess how well our reform system is working? I would say it's working super well and everything's going great. Yeah, the recidivism rate is 4 in 10 in 3 years. So, like, instead of sending them to rehab, we're going to go and tell them their number is 416 or whatever and put them in a broom closet. Exactly. Okay. Because while we've increased the number of drug convictions, we've decreased the amount of drug treatment. Okay. Well, that's logical. That makes good sense. Yes. The number of drug treatment slots in American prisons has declined by more than half. Since 1993. So we're literally putting them in a broom closet. Pretty much. Drug treatment is now available to just one in ten of inmates who need it. This is making me want to pull my hair out. Like, this is very upsetting to me. Well, let me make it worse. Let's create some cognitive dissonance within people. Yes, please do, because this is something you should be mad about. Oh, I meant the prisoners, but yes, as me too. Me, now, yes. I am experiencing that moment. Well, the thing that I am... 
get most upset about besides the whole solitary confinement thing. We'll save that for another day because this is already running extremely long. <laughs> we could talk about prison forever. Is the prison industrial complex. Prison industrial complex. Right. So let's take on the military know, industrial complex right. as profitable size by Dwight D. Eisenhower. And so with the prison industrial complex, same thing. You have politicians, liberal and conservative, everybody. Everybody. And they've used their fear of crime to gain votes. You have these impoverished rural areas where they're building these prisons and they are getting jobs and money from it. So they want to keep that up. That's a cornerstone of their economic development. And then, of course, you have the private companies coming in that make about mm, $35 billion. Billion. $35 billion each year. Yeah, so that is building private and public prisons. But did you know that there are private prisons? Yeah, I did know that. So you have you do have public prisons that are run by private entities, mm-hmm. but you also have separate private prisons that are contracted with different municipalities. Okay, so they've got private prisons. Are they like ritzy prisons for white-collar criminals? Are they like special, or like hotels, basically? Well, they do have some similarities. Private prison companies have thrived in lots of states, including... Texas? Yes. I knew it. They can operate facilities for a government agency or build and operate its own facility. That started kind of in the 80s. So okay. it's all tied together. And today, at least 27 states make use of private prisons, and approximately 90,000 inmates are being held in prisons run for profit. So do you think they started the... Um the prisons when they decided that they were going to incarcerate people for nonviolent crimes, like at a higher rate, do you think there was any kind of concerted effort or do you just think there were more inmates and so they needed somewhere to put them? Right. Supply and demand. Okay. So more inmates. And so there's the obvious problems of having a private prison that's run for profit. Well, you need to put heads in the beds, right? You need, you need people there or you don't get paid. Well, that's very true. There's a lot of components related to that. They do share profits with local communities. And so the more prisoners in the jail, the more money the local municipality will get. But they also have a lovely method to fill those beds. And that would be renting the beds out. Like Airbnb. For violent criminals. No, 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 no. So let's say you're Montana. You've had a giant prison riot. (laughs) There's been a bazooka. You need something to do with all these violent criminals. And... Small prison in Huntsville, Texas has some empty beds. They will rent those beds to Montana. And so that no. state will pay the private company for use of those beds. And there's been a lot of problems with that. I, like my head, when you're like Montana, Texas, my immediate thought is like transporting all those prisoners. Like that's going to be so expensive to have proper security. I can't even imagine that it would be profitable. Well, Who's so paying just, for they it? They just don't really do proper security oh there are numerous incidents of people escaping of people attacking the drivers because they probably had an orientation similar to that given at the stanford prison experiment probably similar (laughs) except they didn't say don't use your baton and you know they also save money by using like low-wage workers that are non-unionized and you know there's very little government oversight of this no no, so nobody's coming in and checking to make sure that everybody's fed and clean and happy and healthy and all those things. No not one's doing much, that. No? Not as much. But, you know, recently there was an investigation. Okay, good. An independent investigation by the federal government. 
and it led to changes in federal policy. And this came out literally this month. Of course, they cite that there's been a decline in prisoners, and that's true. And that's a good thing, because that's mostly related to changes in drug sentencing. Good. But there's also been concern for safety and security problems. You know, these private prisons have been shown to be more violent with more assaults and lockdowns. And, you know, they don't really save much on cost. They also have a lot less rehab programs than the public prisons. God, you would think the private prisons would, like, be like, oh, and we can charge extra for the rehab. I guess the state wouldn't pay it. I guess that Yeah, no way. I don't know, I hear private, and I start thinking, like, oh, a private mental facility versus a public one, where it's like, and you can go and have art therapy for 17 hours and just draw bunnies or whatever. You know, like, more touchy-feely, but it's not that way, is it? No, because they have no reason. No incentive. No incentive to get people out and to keep people out. Because it's like, like the prisoners choose where they go. And so the federal government just announced they will no longer be using private prisons. Thank God. That's a great step in the right direction. I feel like that has so much potential to actually make a positive change within our judicial and penal systems. But we can't forget that most prisoners are kept in state prisons. Mm -hmm. For example, California now is the biggest prison system in the Western industrialized world. It's 40% bigger than the Federal Bureau of Prisons. The state holds more inmates in its jails and prisons than do France, Great Britain, Germany, Japan, Singapore, and the Netherlands combined. Well, they've abolished the death penalty in California, yet they still have a death row. And the cost per prisoner of keeping people on death row has got to be exorbitant. Oh, it is. It definitely is. So, we see how the system's just set up to be very difficult to beat Whenever you're convicted, you're held in jail as you're innocent until proven guilty. You have very little options to get out. And then when you do get out, you're faced with a number of trials. And of course, there are the financial problems that come along with being in jail. You know, the average wage of an incarcerated man that gets out of jail is 40% lower than those that have never been jailed. By 45 years of age. That's insane. But even more importantly than that to me is the psychological effect of being in prison. Right. We've talked a lot about that. But there's been even more research on what happens to these people when they get out. As they're in prison, they become more accustomed to these restrictions that the institutional life imposes. And they begin to internalize that. How did you not? It happened in a few days. You adjust your expectations to resolve conflict with your environment. And if your environment is shit and you're told that you're shit and you're treated like shit, you're going to expect shit. Relinquish your freedom and autonomy. You lose that sense of control. And one thing they state is that, you know, you no longer rely on that internal self-organization or those self-imposed personal limits. You rely on those external motivators. Someone has to stop me. Exactly. And you also get these like PTSD-like symptoms, you know, hypervigilance, psychological alienation, social withdrawal, and you start to incorporate those exploitive norms from prison culture, and also, of course, have a diminished sense of self-worth. So obviously, the only way to get out isn't in a coffin. 
But when it comes to that prison mentality, I don't know if there is a way to escape. So escape is just a story? I guess it's just a story. Society 13 Podcast Network. Redefining Podcasts. Society-13.com I like to listen.